0: Well, good morning, everyone, and as you can see on the screen, we have two Bible readings. The first is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 10 to 20. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, And when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you'll forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. second reading comes from Matthew chapter 17, verse 14 and following. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt down before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, "Why couldn't we drive it out?" He replied, "Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you." When they came together in uh, In Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him, and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name, welcomes me. Morning everyone,
1: six to eight are heading off, our Bible study time, for the rest of us please do keep your Bibles open. And our sermon passage, Matthew uh, uh, chapter 17, beginning verse 14, I'll lead us in prayer and we'll get underway. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word, the scriptures. Please help us uh, this morning to concentrate, to tremble and to rejoice at your word, to take it to heart so that we might become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Why sympathise with infant baptism? I've always wanted to say that right at the start of a sermon, because it's such a striking thing to bring up right at the start, isn't it? Infant baptism, people. Uh, As an ordained Anglican minister, I do hold the conviction that infant baptism is a good and right practice of the church. If you're a follower of Jesus, I will gladly baptise your baby. And uh, my three children were all baptised as uh, very young people. But... More importantly, much more importantly, as a Bible believing Christian, I hold the conviction, and I hope you do too, that infant baptism is not a first order issue. It fits in the category of disputable matters. To paraphrase the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 14, one Christian considers infant baptism a good practice, another Christian thinks adult baptism is the way to go. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind, And it matters far more that people hold what's in line with their conscience than whether they are one or the other. If you are someone who does not agree with infant baptism, yet you are a member of our Anglican Church, number one, praise God for you. Number two, by definition, you hold that infant baptism cannot possibly be an issue over which to divide fellowship. And that is the biblically sound way to think. And I might add that the baptisms I've enjoyed the most have actually been the baptisms of adults, some of which I've performed myself. When I ask why sympathize with infant baptism, I'm not asking whether you agree with it or not. I'm asking why it's a respectable position to hold. The answer as to why it's a respectable position, whether you hold to it or not, has much to do with what Jesus teaches about what I'm going to call kingdom faith. You understand what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about what I'm going to call kingdom faith, then you learn why it is that the practice of infant baptism at least makes sense, whether you end up being for or against it. And it so happens that some of the most important teachings of Jesus about kingdom faith are in today's passage from Matthew's Gospel, and so I hope you're all ready to get stuck into it with me. To start with, we actually get a picture of the opposite of kingdom faith. That is insidious self-sufficiency. You know what insidious means? It's like something bad that kind of keeps increasing and growing bit by bit, right? Insidious self-sufficiency. The scene gets set from verse 14. It when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and he's suffering greatly, often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. So we've got a guy that has the absolute perfect approach to Jesus, kneeling before him, calling him Lord, begging for mercy. For something that he cannot possibly take care of himself. That's the response that is absolutely ideal when it comes to Jesus. But the reason this guy has come to Jesus is because Jesus' disciples have not been able to heal this man's son, as he presumably expected. What does Jesus think about the inability of his disciples at this point? Well, it might not be... uh, what you would have expected. It's actually pretty full on. Verse 17. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. If you're like me, it, it, it kind of seems that Jesus' response is Sort of over the top and harsh. It's like when he said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter in last week's uh, uh, passage. And now he's kind of doing it to all the disciples. And on first reading, Jesus' response can also seem really unfair, which uh, for us we can call it un-Australian, because it's unfair. It's like this father says, hey, Jesus, your merely human little disciples couldn't do this amazingly impossible job And Jesus responds, oh my goodness, they're such losers. I can't wait to get away from these guys, right? That's Why why wouldn't you be more kind? Why wouldn't you be more understanding at this point? But of course, as I'm sure you all know, Jesus, being the perfect and divine son of God, has this annoying habit of being absolutely right about 100% of the time. So the right thing for us to do is to work out why he's so harsh at this point. Well, here's a couple of things that will help. All the way back in chapter 10, Jesus had given these disciples the authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. He had given them that authority. And in the last few sections, just before today's passage, Jesus had been stressing the idea that entry into the kingdom of God is not about. Great power and glory and might and status, but about the humble, other-person-serving way of the cross. So you put two and two together and you start to wonder if, as can so easily be the case, these disciples had got a bit carried away. They'd started to think that their amazing power was actually coming from themselves and that the kingdom of heaven was about great power and pride and victory without necessarily great weakness and shame and the defeat of the cross. It's like we saw in that first Bible reading from Deuteronomy 8, when God gives people tremendous success and blessing and, and prosperity, well, our sinful tendency very easily is to start assuming that it's, we kind of deserve it or it, it kind of comes more from us. And insidious self-sufficiency overtakes our right sense that we're actually humbly reliant upon God For all good things. Now it's also true that Jesus' harsh comments also portray a desperate frustration more generally about how Israel as a whole has so consistently rejected God and fallen under his judgment. Remember, Jesus said, O unbelieving generation. He's actually speaking more broadly than, than just the disciples. But the writer, Matthew wants us to focus on the failings of the disciples in particular. We know that because that's where he goes next. If we ask the question, is it the case that regardless of how general Jesus' words are meant to be taken, that these apostles have moved into self-sufficiency mode? Well, the answer we're going to get is certainly yes, they have. And that's where Matthew takes us. So verse 19, it says, Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we help that guy? Jesus replied, verse 20, because you, the disciples, have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, presumably the mountain he'd just been transfigured on, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. You do the logic and you work out that therefore they didn't even have the tiny smaller than a mustard seed amount of faith required to do this this healing. They had moved into self-sufficiency mode rather than God-reliant mode. In fact, in a parallel account, this same account but from another gospel writer, from Mark, I think, uh, we find that Jesus actually says, your problem is that you didn't even think to pray. You didn't do the the thing that shows you're reliant on God and by the way prayerlessness is I think the ultimate indicator of self-reliance prayerlessness is the ultimate indicator of self-reliance the less a person prays by definition really the more self-reliant they are the more a person prays the more God-reliant they are All Christians need to hear this fairly consistently. Men in particular, according to the Apostle Paul, especially need to hear it. Uh, Men, be the prayer leader in your house, in your family. Then comes the final confirmation that the problem here really is self-sufficiency rather than a reliance upon God's provision. Jesus again tells them about the way that he will ultimately overthrow the cause of all demonic possession and sickness and death, the path that he's on that will involve him being despised, rejected, shamed, humiliated before entering his glory. And how do these disciples respond? Well, let's see, verse 22. There it is. When they came together in Galilee... He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples believed his word. They understood that the Christ had to suffer and then enter his glory. And they reasoned that Jesus must be the suffering servant who would take up their infirmities and do away with the effects of sin. And they were overjoyed and elated to know that he would definitely be raised up to new life. Amen. (laughs) You get the point though, right? And the disciples were filled with grief. You see, it was still hard for them to lean not on their own understanding, but to acknowledge the one who would make the straight path toward the cross before being raised definitely to glory. And friends, you and I would have been absolutely no different. We'd be the same. We're like the disciples, really, in a lot of ways. You and I would so readily trust our own abilities our own instincts, our own understanding far more readily than trust what God has revealed. Given that most of us, by the way, on a world scale would be considered the most successful, the most powerful, the most blessed people on the planet, it follows that we in particular need to be especially aware of the ease with which insidious Self-sufficiency can render us, frankly, ineffective for the work of the kingdom. Dear Lord, save us from prayerlessness and self-reliance and from pride. But what would it look like for these disciples once they did, in fact, put more trust in God than in themselves? Well, one of the wonderful things that kingdom faith brings is the freedom To give up rights. Christians have the freedom to give up their rights. And it's actually a wonderfully liberating thing. Uh, Verse 24, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, uh, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? And as you can see my spoiled meme already, Yes, he does, he replied, and when you read it, if you're like me, you think, is that a very awkward, yeah, he does, like sort of thing. Like there's nothing to kind of indicate that that Peter knows, and especially given that in a moment Jesus is kind of going to talk to Peter about this, You, you might even be right to assume he kind of isn't sure but just says the right thing. Back in chapter 12, Jesus had said that he was greater than the temple. The temple of the Jews where the true and living God dwells. Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. And that could easily have caused the Pharisees to wonder if Jesus was claiming to be someone who holds such a high or priestly office so as to be exempt from the upkeep that the average Jewish male would have paid to, to service the temple. And it turns out that that actually is true. That is the case. Jesus happens to be, in case you've missed it, you know, every second passage, the true and living son of God who dwelt in that temple. And so continuing from verse 25, when Peter came to the house, Jesus was the first to speak because he knows what's going on. What do you think, Simon, he asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others'? And it's kind of served up on a plate, really, isn't it? I mean, what are you going to answer to this, right? The king's going to tax their own family. or or There's only one answer Peter can give, of course. From others, Peter answered. Then the children, the children of the king, are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin, and give it to them for my tax and yours. You know, the thing that I think when I read this little bit is that would be the coolest day ever of fishing for a person like me because you would guarantee to catch one. (laughs) If Jesus said you're going to get one, then you have to get one, right? That would be one. Anyway, in other words, I think Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Son of God. He is the Son of God and therefore he is exempt from the tax that is in service of his, his heavenly Father. But as the son of God, he also has the freedom to choose to humble himself before God and to serve others. It might be hard for Peter and the disciples to believe this, but if he gets a four drachma coin, which he kind of needs, out of the first random fish that he catches, well, maybe he can believe that even the son of man came not to be served, but to to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And maybe Peter and the disciples would likewise learn that they should not rely on themselves, should not rely on their own understanding, but take up their cross as well and follow him. As the glorious Christ, who's greater than Moses and Elijah, as the one for whom God in the last uh, uh, passage gave his audible voice saying, listen to him, Jesus did not have to choose to pay the price for your sins and mine. But as the son of God, without compulsion, he did freely choose to lay down his life. It was his choice to do that, just as it was his choice to raise it up again. He had no compulsion. He just chose. Now, what does any of this have to do with kingdom faith? Well, friends, it is a constant challenge to trust that God's miraculous provision is not for our own glory, but for his, especially where we are so blessed materially. It is a constant challenge to trust that God's miraculous provision is all that is required for us to run the race that he's marked out for us. And yet, denying ourselves daily, taking up our cross, actually frees us to concentrate on the needs of others. See, if you're already dead because you've taken up your cross, well, you don't need to worry about yourself, do you? You can just worry about... Everyone else. As sons and daughters adopted into the family of God, which we are if we're in Christ, we serve others, therefore, not because we have to, but because we can. We can choose to. It's wonderfully liberating to have the freedom of the Christian, as Martin Luther calls it, to know that we are free to choose to serve. And I actually think that makes for better and more enthusiastic service than if you do it under compulsion anyway. Kingdom faith gives me the, re, the, the freedom to be no longer concerned with my rights, but to be concerned with loving God and neighbour. And it's with that that Matthew brings us to the key points to which the teachings he's recorded here are leading. Put simply, kingdom faith is decide, decidedly childlike. The child is completely unaware of any rights or worldly status and totally aware that they 100% rely on their carers for their provision. That's the kind of faith that those in the kingdom will have. And so 18 verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who then, given all this stuff? You see, this is the question to which the previous section has been building up. Given that we've been learning that kingdom faith is the opposite to the worldly notions of power and self-sufficiency, and given that kingdom faith is about giving up rights, giving up status, and serving others by choice, well, who then is the greatest one? Who then is the model? There's a certain irony to the question because... If you really get what Jesus is going on about, it probably wouldn't occur to you to ask who's the greatest in the kingdom, right? But nonetheless, Jesus answers the question by giving them the example par excellence of the kingdom of faith. Here we go. Verse 2, he called a little child to him, placed a child among them. He said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. In other words, I am like this lowly child as well. A couple of weeks ago, um, poor Kate... Needed a, a, a last-minute babysitter for, for the lovely little Thomas so that she could teach scripture. I was doing nothing for an hour and a half. So I said, of course, I'd like to come and look after him. He was going to be asleep anyway. But I was, I was there in the house. After a while, I heard a little whimpering, you know. and so Probably finished his nap. I'll go pick him up. And I went and I picked him up. And first, he kind of leaned on me like this. And then he kind of looked. It's like, I'm pretty dopey, but I'm pretty sure you're not mum or dad. But... But hey, oh, yes, for good. And then he kind of just like went back. But, uh, well, what else is he going to do? And frankly, he's not going to care. Oh, there's a big, ugly, warm guy. This will do, you know. That, that's, there's, there's no sense of, you know, like I, I have to kind of have something set out for me in a certain way, if you don't mind, please. It's just I, I just rely. That's, that's the only sort of thing I can do. You see, the little child has no rights, upon which to make demands. Now, that's from their perspective. Of course, in reality, children have very significant rights. You know, uh, As a matter of fact, um, it is very sad that our culture, in many ways, is starting to, frankly, infringe on the rights of little children. And in next passage, Jesus is going to have some important things to say about the rights of children. But you see, those rights are given in the absence of the child's ability to apprehend them. The child simply holds on to whatever is provided with no sense of self-sufficiency when there's something lacking the first and often the only thing they do is start crying for the parent to to heed and to to meet whatever their needs are that's why Jesus along with pretty much everyone in every other human culture can describe them as lowly in the eyes of the world nothing to offer other than their intense cuteness which is wonderful but you know nothing to offer no utility by which they might earn their keep Just dependent beings whose first instinct is to cry for help and a bit later on, and frankly just as telling, to hold out their hand to receive something. He wants a bit of food or something, it's just, that's it. (laughs) And that is why it is so fitting that those upon whom the sign of entry into God's kingdom is made by way of baptism are precisely those who have no ability and can only depend on what is given to them and done for them. Now, of course, that in itself is not at all a sufficient argument for the rightness of infant baptism, but like I said at the beginning, I'm not interested in doing that here. But I hope you can see, regardless of your position, why many Christians do and have held that there's something very right about the infant being the one upon whom the, the sign of Christ's cleansing Is performed because that is the example par excellence of the faith of those that are in his kingdom. And given that Jesus says we are to change to become like little children, well, then I think the logic must be that the more mature we become as Christians, it must be that the more childlike our reliance on God needs to be, needs to become. And I think that's kind of the trajectory that these disciples themselves find themselves on. You get later on, once Jesus really is crucified and once really he is raised, they have this big ulmer. We oh, really would have been right to kind of throw ourselves against our own understanding on, on what he was saying and what he was doing. Of course, they couldn't, but that was the big aha moment, and they became childlike in their dependence. See, as Jesus went down, down, down and humbled himself in obedience and reliance upon his heavenly father to the point of death on a cross, so too in our spiritual lives we're to continually increase our dependence upon him. And by the way, friends, this is one of the reasons why suffering, though itself a horrible thing, can yet also for the Christian become a means of great blessing. Because for the Christians, suffering produces a necessary increase in our childlike dependence on God. Uh, And it's the God who is soon to bring us into eternal glory with Christ. You see, suffering sometimes gets intense enough that you can't reason or logic. All you can do is cry out and hold out the hand. The suffering actually makes you childlike and therefore increases your Christian maturity. So by way of implication, um, I had to think, how, if I'm applying this to myself first, how would I take practical steps to increase my childlike faith, my kingdom faith? Well, the first thing I came up with is, I think it's really good to periodically just think of one thing to give thanks for. Now, when I get in the car, when I pick up my kids from school in the afternoon, uh, I know that it's going to be hard when I say, you know, well, what happened at school today? Mm-hmm, nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that's what I'm going to expect. So I don't say that. I say, can you remember one thing that happened today? Right? And then it's a bit of a challenge, and they have to give an answer. And typically, if they can answer for one thing, it, it, it's a little bit easier to, to get a little bit more, you see. So, friends, you and I are completely reliant and dependent on God for all good things, whether we realise it or not. If you can get yourself to the point, whether daily, weekly, whatever, hourly, where you say, what is just one thing? That's all I've got to do. What's one thing I can give thanks for today? Thanks God for my shoes. I don't know. Thanks God for the guitar. It doesn't matter what it is, right? If you can get one thing, then there's a pretty good chance you can then think of, one more thing now if you've been paying really good attention you might be saying to me ben why thanksgiving as opposed to prayer because prayerlessness is faithlessness and more prayer and that's because i'm just being a trick like doing a trick like i do with my kids you see if you get one thing for thanksgiving and then another and another soon you might think of what's something that i need or want there you go pull the rug out from under your feet there you're into prayer now right But it doesn't seem daunting to think I'm going to spend half an hour praying. No, just think of one thing. I'm thankful to God for this. I'm thankful, oh, God, that'll be really good. There, I'm prayed. There we go. Increase my reliance. One thing, people. Another good little practical step is find one thing to be God conscious of. Now, what do I mean by this? Okay. Stay with me here, people. Every now and then I take a walk around the lake down Harrington Park, right? Anyone go walk around the lake every now and then? A lot of locals? Yeah, yeah, okay. It's it's nice. Don't ask me why, this is my crazy brain, right? But there's this little part, it's kind of like on the side closer to where the coals is, where, I don't know why, why, there's these like wooden poles and these wooden ducks on the top of the poles, kind of looking like this, like, I don't know, do they have a purpose or is it just like they're artistic or something? I have no idea why they're there for, and so, but that's why they catch my eye, right? Okay, get it? you do on a walk. Every time I see that wooden duck, I'm going to pray for something. And once you've had that thought, and I've basically, maybe there'll be a whole lot of people. Now. Once you've had that thought, right, every time you see the wooden duck, you just think of that thing, right? You think of that thing to pray for. I don't know why. Maybe, maybe this is only working for me, but I'll, I'll, I've at least chucked it out there just to see if it works for you, right? You just find one kind of trigger to be God-conscious. Some people have their thing... Another weird one is um, I'm an, a very oral, audio kind of learner. Uh, if I've heard a song when I've been driving in a car at a certain place, next time I get to that same place, I remember the song. I don't know why. That's how it is, right? You can see how that could be really useful. Well, what if I prayed after hearing the, whatever that song was? I'm like Pavlov's dog at this point, you know, like, here there I am. But I've just put something in place to keep my kingdom faith, to keep my childlike reliance on God as as kind of a constant. The last thing, and this is where I really feel hypocritical and I've really got to preach to myself, I think is a brilliant expression of childlike kingdom faith, is this. A Sabbath is a rest. It means a day off. Uh, And it can be hard when your work is not especially structured or when you're not structured or both, to be really good at having the, the downtime, the day off. Uh, I need to remember this crazy thought that, that God might still just be able to manage, just to do what he's going to do, even if I'm not helping. Isn't that incredible? Wow. Wow. I have to remember that he's just a little, by which I mean completely, infinitely more powerful and sovereign than than I'm barely a drop in the ocean and frankly expendable and and nigh irrelevant, except for the fact that he chooses to love me. The world's not going to fall apart. The, The things that don't get done are probably not going to matter very much in the grand scheme of eternity if I have the day off. Why am I preaching so powerfully at you? Because you know the trick, right? There's one finger at you, there's three back at me. I'm I'm preaching at you, yes, to have the Sabbath. If you're someone like me who struggles to be okay with, you know, leaving things when they sort of need attention, but it's the difference between having a day off and not, be a child. Be the kid who just flops and goes, well, this is what I'm going to do here and now. God is still going to manage to keep it all together. Uh, And on that very fitting note, I'm about to go sit down, but first I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, though being completely God, he did not consider his equality with you a thing to be grasped, but actually made himself low and humble and took the root of the cross and rightly commands us to do likewise, that we might inherit eternal glory with him. Heavenly Father, please increase our kingdom faith. Please change us more and more to become like little children. Please give us that great freedom that having taken up our cross, we can just choose to serve others without the worry about ourselves and without the worry that the world's going to fall apart when we take a rest. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.